Um, in your family, uh, every family has conflicts, right? Uh, and so sometimes families adopt, you know, these neat little ways to try to resolve it. I wonder in your family if you ever have a conflict over deciding where you're going to eat. Anybody? Anybody have this? Come on. Come on. Anybody? Yeah. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? I don't know. Where do you want to eat? Right? And then, and then, and then you notice nobody knows where they want to eat until somebody says where they want to eat, and then I don't want to eat there. <laughs> right? Do you go through this? So we came up with a way in our family a few years ago to try to solve that. Uh, whoever says an idea, if anybody else says, no, I don't like it, then it's your turn. Yeah? You like that? Hey, you want, you want to go to Subway? Oh, okay. There you go. Except for then, the mischievous ones among our family start to purposely choose ones that nobody wants to go to. You know what I'm saying? So it's not a perfect system. Now, now look, uh, if you're under, I don't know, 25 or 30, you won't remember this, but uh, way before driving laws were, were as strict as they are, and seatbelt laws, and all the things that are here to protect us, people used to just jump in the car wherever they wanted. Do you remember this? And there was a little game when there were two kids, do you remember we'd call shotgun? How many of you remember... I remember what shotgun. Yeah, remember that, right? Yeah, shotgun. There's certain rules to shotgun. You can't call it for like, hey, tomorrow shotgun. No, 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 no. That's tomorrow. You can't call. You can't call it that early, right? You can't call it that early. Everybody knows that. You know, shotgun. We're not even outside yet. You know, there are these unwritten rules to shotgun. And then whoever called it, and then it was only good for one ride. Once you get out, no, you you lost that shotgun. Too late. Like you left the car. So we, so we have all these little, little ways to resolve these family conflicts. One of my personal favorites, but it works most effectively if you have two children, uh, not one, not three, but two, there's a, a one candy bar, right? And, and then we're going to half it. Oh, well, you know there's no perfect. If you half it, they're going to fight over the one that has one, you know, milligrain larger than the other one. They're going to fight over that one. So... Uh, maybe you inherited this wisdom from your parents as I did. You just hand one of them a knife. You say, you cut and you pick. Isn't that the greatest parent move you've ever heard? No, they hate it. Yes, and parents love it. Well, then don't eat it. <laughs> one of you is going to cut, one of you is going to pick. You know, we, we have all these ways to um, try to resolve conflicts. Those are pretty light and funny. But then sometimes we have heavier ones. Uh, I was a part of one when I was in college. It happened to be a heated political uh, campaign season, which I don't remember the last time we didn't have one of those. I think they all are now, just the way it goes. And uh, George Bush Sr. was up for re-election. How many of you remember George? Well, who, who did he run against? Dukakis or, I don't know, Monda, somebody. George Bush Sr. was up for re-election. I was in college and it was all heated, and we're on this college campus, and of course, everybody's going to just fight to the death, you know, over who's supposed to, the one, and, and uh, I, I, I had a particular persuasion, but, uh, but I, I, I was generally probably leaning more toward Bush, but there were these Bush advocates on campus that were so fundamental and, and uh, militant about it that I just thought, I don't think I can take any more of this, so I wonder if I could just stir the pot up a little bit. So not being completely saved, you know, mostly, me and a roommate of mine said, man, I'm so tired of hearing this guy yak about, you know, Bush and this. So we got T-shirts one night, and, and we, uh, white T-shirts, and we made a little picture on it. This is way before airbrush, nothing that sophisticated, permanent marker. And, and we created a little, a little like, hedge bush, and we said, on, now you got to understand, you got to be a theology major or pastor major for this to even be funny, but we said, I think we're about to see another burning bush. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You like that? And so we show up to English literature with these shirts on, because we knew that's where the guy was we were trying to irritate. Yeah. And he was in there, and sure enough, it's prayer request time, and oh man, pray for our country. You know, here we go. Here it comes. Pray, pray for our country. 
you know. And we had our show, we were sort of back and forth before the prayer time, you know, because we were so spiritual. We were anticipating this great prayer time. We were jabbing at this guy. And, and uh, man, he, he was just he was, he was just at a fever pitch. And, and, and I think it wound him up so hot that he and the professor then got into it. And they're going after it. And finally, this professor, who I have all the respect in the world for, he, he told him, I, forget, I think the guy's name was Dan. He said, Dan, I'm done. Get your stuff and leave my class now. And Dan, you know, slid out. And, and then it was quiet. And, and then I started to hide my shirt. I thought, oh, Jesus. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't have a coat. It's Florida. You know, what am I going to do? We just kind of hunkered down because I thought, oh, we caused this. And then our professor, who was much wiser and more mature and more Christian than I and my roommate, said, would you please pray for Dan and I? Because this was an obvious conflict, and it's not been resolved, and the enemy will exploit it if he can. And I love him, and I don't want that to happen. So will you pray? This needs to be resolved. And, I, and, I, and the class went on with this unresolved conflict hanging in the air, probably much more over me and my roommate than everybody else, because we, well, we were responsible, <laughs> partly. And it felt terrible. It just felt terrible. That's what we have here in Acts chapter 15. We have an unresolved conflict. If you've been following along in our series, you know that we're studying the book of Acts this summer. We're studying how the gospel and the church spread uh, for the first 30 years of Christianity. The church became a viral movement very quickly. And the church started in Jerusalem and, uh, because Christians were running for their lives. Wherever those Christians would run for their lives to the next town or city, the church slowly spread a little bit. Then the Holy Spirit began to call some of the leaders to take the gospel to new cities and new countries by planting churches. And two of the greatest missionary church planters in the entire New Testament are Paul and Barnabas. And so they had already finished one missionary journey, and they were about to start their second missionary journey. And since all the churches that they had planted were new and fragile and little baby churches, just a handful of people, and they were the only church in the city they were in and sometimes the only church in the country they were in. So Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back through and let's retrace our steps and let's check on them. Let's see how they're doing and let's encourage them and strengthen them. So this is the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. So Paul and Barnabas, as they were planning to go, they decided to build a team. And they began to select people who were on their team. And you, you could imagine how that might have gone. Something like, let's take, you know, Bartholomew or whoever, because he's good at navigating. And Zacchaeus over here, or whatever the names would have been, he knows multiple languages, so he would be helpful. And then Barnabas looks at Paul and says, hey, let's take Mark. And Paul says, Mark? Are you kidding me? You've lost your mind. I've taken Mark before. I'm not taking him again. Like he's a backseat driver. He talks the whole time. You know, we had him out there on our first missionary journey, Barnabas. I don't know if you remember this. And midway through, he just disappeared. He left. I'm not going to take him. And Barnabas says, well, we should take him. And, and these two Champions, these two heroes came in such a disagreement over this young guy named Mark that they actually split. They separated. Because Mark deserted them, and so Paul said, you desert me once, you know, that, that's, that's on you. You desert me twice, that's on me. Barnabas said, but maybe he just needs a little encouragement. And they, and they disagreed so strongly, they separated away. So kind of like in my English literature class, you have this unresolved tension hanging over the baby church. 
The church is less than 30 years old. It can't afford this kind of conflict. Look at Acts 15. We're going to read five verses. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let us go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with them. But Paul did not think it wise. This is where we're still in the diplomatic part. You know, you, you, you generally sneak up on a disagreement. Well, I don't think that would be wisdom. You know, that's where we start. <laughs> because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. Now it ramps up. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Sicilia, strengthening the churches. Okay, quick poll. How many of you are on Barnabas' team? You say, I know he's a deserter. However... Let's just give him another chance. How many of you are on Barnabas's team? How many of you are Barnabas's team? Okay, okay. I, I wonder this morning how many of you are on Team Paul. If you if you desert the work, you can't just go on the second missionary trip. You have to at least sit one out. How many of you are on Team Paul? Yeah. All right. Okay. All right. Good number. Uh, how many of you think you're right? <laughs> yeah, we all right. Yeah, that should be everybody. Okay, just just testing. What well, we instinctively know we're supposed to side with Barnabas at least publicly, right? Because this is church. We're supposed to believe the best and all that stuff. And we say, but what if Mark just needs another chance? Maybe he just needs a little encouragement. However, Paul might have actually had a point. This is a matter of life and death. Christians all over the world are, are being persecuted and some are being killed for their faith and, and young Mark can't even show up at snack break. You see what I'm saying? He couldn't even finish the first journey. Why take him on another one? Maybe by not taking him on the other journey, it would teach him something about how serious this is. There's another, there's another point there. Either way, Paul and Barnabas can't even agree who gets to go on the trip. Now, to try to put this in a little perspective, I want you to imagine how that might look and feel to us. So if you know Pastor Clark White, you know that he's over all of our global missions effort, and we have a lot of it. We just took the largest team in our entire church's history, 53 people on a mission trip to Honduras. Fantastic. And so imagine for a minute, though, that Clark says to me, hey, there's this guy, I don't know, Bartholomew. We'll try to go for somebody we don't know. Bartholomew that I want to take to Honduras. And I say, Clark, you, you can't take him. Well, I think he should go. Well, I don't think he should go. Well, well I'm going to take him anyway. Well, if you take him, I'm not going. Imagine this. This is what we're talking about. Matter of fact, if you take him, not only am I not going, I'm going to build my own team from Kingwood, and we're going to Guatemala. Can you imagine the kind of chaos and conflict that would break out in our church? This is what you're talking about. This is what we have. And we have to ask ourselves, why in the world is this even in the Bible? If I was writing the Bible, I would not put this in there. This is embarrassing, right? This is embarrassing to us Christians. Look, personal conflicts can be complex and difficult to unravel, and I would want to protect the testimony of the church, and the world around us might be tempted. You know, professional athletes might be tempted to say, can't you guys get your act together? This is how we do it in sports. We just change teams. By the way, NBA trade offseason is going to be insane, just FYI. We'll just get mad and change teams. But we expect more from the church, right? The entertainment industry may say, hey, I'm on my fourth husband, and I feel like eventually I'll find the right one if I keep trying. But I mean, in the church, can't we expect, aren't you any different? In politics, oh my goodness. We live like this all the time, but shouldn't the church be different than we are? 
When Luke wrote the book of Acts, he refused to cover this up. He refused to hide it. He lays out the tension. He lays the dark cloud on us, but he won't do a thing to resolve it. Nothing. And we're never told who's right. We're never told who's wrong. We're not even told if there is a right or wrong. They just move on. Who was right? We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. I'm kind of glad the Bible doesn't tell us because if, he di- if, if the Bible did, we would lose focus on the bigger issue, and that is what do we do when we disagree? You just hand somebody the knife and say, you cut and I'll pick? Everything's not resolved that easily. So here's a statement I'd, I'd like for you to remember. Unresolved conflict is one of Satan's greatest weapons to destroy God's work. It destroys God's work in marriage. It destroys God's work in friendship. It destroys God's work in the church. And it destroys the mission of Jesus in the world. There's nothing that drives people away from the church or from Christianity like unresolved or dysfunctional conflict because they look and say, how are you any different than the rest of us? We can fight like that without going to church. We can divorce like you divorce without going to church. We don't need all that. It is vital to God's work in our lives and in the world that we resolve conflicts. So let me give you two quick thoughts this morning if you're taking notes. Number one, and I'm telling you these are going to be earth-shattering, no one is perfect. <laughs> it's, you're like, okay. Revelation, no one is perfect. But let, let's, think, let's think about that for a minute. Even a church like the one we read about in Acts, it is burning white hot. It is spreading like fire through the earth. There are uh, baptisms and salvations and, and uh, conversions and, and miracles and churches being planted, spreading all over the world at a viral pace. But even a viral church is not a perfect church. Now, when we hear this, we all agree with it. I, 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 don't, I wouldn't expect anybody to disagree I just don't think we believe it. <laughs> we agree, we just don't believe it. And the proof is we don't really, the proof that we don't really believe it is revealed every time someone we respect fails or someone that we respect ends up being a little more human than we thought they would be and like it wrecks our world. And that's a sign that we don't really believe it. I was so disappointed the first time as a young Christian I read this verse. Because I thought, man, I mean, they they were moving, man. They were breathing fire. They were cutting through the earth. I'm moving through Acts saying, this is church? This is not how I grew up. This is crazy. And, and, And these figures in your mind, as you see how God used them and what they did, they just grow and grow and grow and grow and become these towering images. And then all of a sudden, the brakes are locked on. And you go, what? You two can't even get along? What, what, what is it? Did somebody cut and paste over my Bible? What is this? And you ask, isn't there a place of spiritual maturity and spiritual effectiveness that we can get where conflicts no longer exist? And the answer is no. No, the answer is no. And you want to look at Paul and Barnabas and say, come on, guys, show the rest of us how to do this. Why are we so surprised when we find humans in the church? Because it challenges our own tendency toward idolatry. We we have a deep craving to worship. And we are so tempted to worship what we can see and what we can touch and what we can hear. We are so tempted to do it. We're so tempted, but only God deserves to be worshipped. There's only one perfect person, and there's no other substitute that's ever going to do. We only set ourselves up for frustration and confusion and bitterness when we put our hope in anyone else. 
And that's why we're so disappointed when we read this because we kind of start to put Paul and Barnabas up there on that pedestal and say, but they're stars. And Jesus says, there are no stars. There's a sun, (laughs) but there's no stars. Everyone in the church always has been and always will be human and flawed and imperfect. So what do we do? We must accept that Jesus is our only hope. And we must accept it again and again and again and again and again all our lifetime because our tendency as humans is to find anything and everything else that we can worship. And so we have to come back to that cross again and again. The other thing we do is we must learn to accept people for who they are. Broken, imperfect, flawed, but on a journey toward Jesus and wholeness. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says it this way, But we have this treasure in jars of clay. What is the treasure? The treasure is the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ. Where does the good news about Jesus Christ live most powerfully? In these jars of clay. (laughs) Paul said you're written epistles. You're like a letter of the Bible written on your life. That precious, perfect gospel lives in these just simple, plain old containers of clay, of human flesh. And that's by God's choice. So you're going to be much more effective at resolving the conflicts in your life if you'll not expect the people in your life to be perfect. Much of our conflict comes from unmet expectations, and, and often it's because our expectations are too high. So every, everyone you'll ever have a conflict with is imperfect and broken on some level, so approach conflict with care, because you're dealing with an imperfect person, and you are one yourself. So in marriage, your spouse cannot be, um, cannot be perfect. They don't have the ability, and the longer you have an unrealistic expectation about them, the more conflict you're going to have. Your children cannot be perfect. Your child is not the next Messiah. They're not going to save the world. They're probably not even going to save your family. We just need to get them through school, okay? Right? Get a driver's license, get them graduated, right? Your child's not perfect. They can't be perfect. And if you have any expectations of perfection on their life, you will ultimately cause conflict between you and them and them and everybody else. And I got other news for you. Your parents aren't perfect. And when we expect our parents to be perfect at any age, whether we're teenagers or children or we're 30 or 40 or 50 and we still look at mom and dad and expect perfection from them it just causes conflict and it's going to continue to cause conflict if you will approach people with unconditional acceptance like I'm going to accept you I know you're not perfect I know you're broken I know you have your own personality I know you have your own fears your own dreams your own baggage your own wounds and I'm going to approach you that way and I'm going to accept you no matter what It just eases the tension in the room. And it allows conflict to be much more easily resolved. We oftentimes fight so hard because there's a lack of acceptance. And we fear rejection. So we're powering up to protect ourselves. But if you can set an atmosphere of unconditional acceptance, then... I don't, it lowers the fear of rejection, and things can be worked out. All right, here's the first thought. No one's perfect. Second thought, especially now we see Paul and Barnabas. Second thought, we must work toward God's perfect plan of reconciliation. Nobody's perfect, but there is a perfect plan. There is a perfect plan. God has a perfect plan. God has a perfect plan to unify the whole world. And right at the center of that plan is his perfect son, Jesus, who lived perfectly, who died sacrificially, and who loves us perfectly. 
Satan separates and divides. Broken people fight and hurt each other and separate. But what God does is he calls us to reconciliation and healing and wholeness in Jesus. That's his perfect plan. 2 Corinthians 5, 18-20, he talks a little bit about it. All this is from God. Who, by the way, this is Paul writing this. Who reconciled us to himself... Through who? Through Christ. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, when Jesus was on earth, he spent his entire time trying to reconcile people to the Father. But when he left and went to heaven, he actually handed the keys to the car over to the church, to each one of us, and said, now you, now you do it. I'm gone. I'm going to heaven. Now you reconcile the world to the Father. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. So this verse is focused on reconciling lost people to God, but it also includes reconciling believers to each other. I think that we've probably become too comfortable with separation. And I think it's probably because in our lifetimes, some of our lifetimes, we've moved from being a rural nation to an urban nation. When you live in a small town with 12 people, you've got to figure out how to get along. You live in an urban center with half a million, million people, you just go find you some more people. The problem is the damage that it does to your soul, to everybody else's soul, and to the community. It doesn't go away. And I think we've become too comfortable with separation. I think we give up too easily. And I think we accept it as a fact of life. And, and, and here, I think, is the proof. We don't grieve when it happens anymore. Why don't we grieve when there's separation? Now, what, you mean marriage? I mean everything. Why don't we grieve when friends separate? Why don't we grieve when people can't stand the sight of each other anymore? Why don't we grieve when children don't talk to their parents anymore? Why, why don't we grieve when people divorce? Why don't we grieve when somebody gets mad and says, you know, I'm, I, don't, I, I can't handle it anymore, I'm going to another church? Why does that separation grieve us? Have we become calloused and numb and we just accept it as a fact of life? Why don't we read this about Paul and Barnabas? Does it, is it shocking? The people that we look up to so much can come to a place where they say, I, I'm, I don't care if I ever see you again. I'm going my own way. I, I think we're too comfortable with separation. So let me give you another statement that will help us. Conflict is a crisis because it has the potential to damage everything God loves. Conflict is a crisis because it has the potential to damage everything God loves. Not only is it a weapon of the enemy, it, it is also a wound inside the, the church and the kingdom of God and the family. To see healing, we've got to wade into the murky waters of conflict, but that's uncomfortable. But let me tell you at this stage of my life where I think I've landed. I think I would rather someone separate from me because they don't like the way that I tried to resolve the conflict than them separating from me because I didn't try to resolve the conflict. I think the first one's better. It's an attempt. So if you have something to write with this morning, let me just give you some quick thoughts. How do we resolve conflicts? How do, how do we do it? Number one, step one, let me say it that way. Prayerfully seek to understand the conflict. How many of you know most fights are not what people tell you they're about? <laughs> right? You, you get in there, in, in marriage especially, you know, it all gets heated, and after about 30 minutes or an hour, then it comes out to, well, last year, oh my Lord, last year, Jesus, last year, <laughs> I didn't know we were talking about last, we've been talking about last year this whole time? Yes. Right? So, before you lunge off into, you always or you never, or you know, all of that, 
Why don't you back up and pray and say, God, would you please help me understand what this conflict is really about? Sometimes it's from the devil. And it's demonically inspired. Sometimes it's from the past, and it has nothing to do. This is the straw that broke the camel's back. It really has nothing to do with this. Sometimes it's not even about the relationship that the conflict has arisen in. Sometimes it's about something else. You bring it in here. You ever have to look at somebody and say, I'm sorry I took this out on you. This really has nothing to do with you. You, you ever had that? I've done that. See, so, you know, if I'm being honest, I'm, I'm stressed, and this is about all this, and you're just standing here, you know, and I took it out on you, and I'm sorry, and I I now realize it. Imagine, though, if you power up and lunge into that. You just flame it up. But but if if you'll say, Lord, help me understand what it's about, and and by the way, as you prayerfully come to understand what is this conflict really about as much as you can, sometimes you realize, you know what, really doesn't matter. I can just let this go, or they can let it go. We can both let it go. Step two, if you can't let it go, what do you do? Meet with the person face-to-face and privately as soon as possible. Let me break that down. Why face-to-face? Because about 70% of communication is body language. And you don't get tone and you don't get body language in email. Please don't resolve a conflict in email. Don't do that. Don't do it on social media. Please don't do it on social media. Privately. That's another word. Don't take it to Facebook. Sometimes some people, you know, and all this, and rant. And everybody knows who you're talking about that knows you. <laughs> so it's not, it's not really a mystery. Uh, the other thing, don't bounce it off three or four people. I just want to know, you know, I just want to know if you think what they did is wrong. Well, you're, you're building your arsenal is what you're doing. And you're hoping to find people that will validate your offense. Don't do that. Don't do that. Because then you're, you're, just, you're just convincing yourself that you ought to be more mad than you thought, and then you're probably just going to ignore them. And then all your friends are going to ignore them, and then you got a whole thing. Don't do that. Uh, as soon as possible, ASAP. The Bible says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Uh, I don't know if you notice this or not. When conflicts are left alone, they almost always get bigger. You know why? Because separation uh, uh, and, and time and space create suspicion. The more separated you are from a person, the more distant you are, the more suspicious you become of their motives. But the closer you are to them and you sit in a room and you listen to them and you talk to them, you look them in the eye, the more at ease you become about, and more understanding you become about who they are and what they're going through. So, so you, you have to close that gap as quick as you can. Step three, affirm the relationship before you discuss the conflict. So you can start out with something like this. Hey, I just want you to know that I, I really love you. And, and this is an uncomfortable conversation for me. And the reason it is is because you're so important to me. I just want you to know that. And if you weren't this important to me, I would never, I would never even talk to you about this. But I really do have something I need to talk to you about. But I just want you to know it's because, it's because I care about you and I value our relationship so much. Well, when you start there and mean it, <laughs> then someone knows that your intent is to try to work this out. Whatever you're going to bring, you're trying to work it out. So step four, make observations rather than accusations. You never, you always, you hurt me, you, did, you know, all this stuff, right? You throw throwing rocks at them. Uh, don't attack. That's not going to work. Don't accuse. Don't attack motives. And don't accuse, because the truth is, I think a large part of conflict is miscommunication. It's, we're misinterpreting what somebody else said or did, and we think we know, you know how they meant it. So start with feelings. When you said that you didn't have time, it, it made me feel like that spending time with me is not important. Well, well, that's different, right? That's different than you don't care. I mean, that's different. Or um, when you didn't show up, it made me feel like I wasn't very important to you. And so you could start there. Being honest about your feelings gives the other person a chance to clear up any miscommunication. They might say, I'm so sorry. 
Like I didn't intend that. I didn't even know that. And look, look how much can be gained in such a short time just by having an open conversation. Now step five, follow up and affirm the relationship again. I think the most important meeting you'll ever have with anyone in your life is the meeting after the conflict is resolved. You know why? Because the next time they're around you, you know this, you've had a conflict with somebody, and the next time you see them, they're reading every part of you, your body language, your voice, your tone, because they're trying to ask themselves this question. Did they mean it? Was it real? Are they really sorry? Are they really honest? Are they really authentic? Do they really care about me? And everything you communicate. So what I'm going to suggest is you actually do it intentionally. Call them, text them, reach out to them, find them, go by work and see them. The day after, two days after, three days after, whenever, reach back out and say, hey, I, I know we had a conflict, and I'm so glad the way that we were able to resolve it. I just wanted, I just wanted to come by and say hi to you and let you know I was thinking about you today. There you go. I just want you to know I care about you. And that communicates then that we, we want this thing to flourish now. We don't, we don't want to end the way we, or with uh, questions in the air. So if you know the other person's love language, if you even know what that is, we don't have time to do that this morning, speak it, because it'll mean a lot right there. Um, so tomorrow morning, as I said, at 3 a.m., we leave with, you know, 121 people to Beach Freak. One of my greatest memories of a resolved conflict comes from Beach Freak. In, in the late 90s, I was a youth pastor at a church in Florida, and, um, and, and there was a youth pastor here at Kingwood, and our church here at Kingwood had their youth group there, and I had my youth group there from Florida. Somehow, as fate and testosterone would have it, there emerged a conflict between my middle school guys and the Kingwood high school guys which happened to mostly be football players at that time. And so our little middle school guys were just convinced that these big Kingwood guys had it out for them. And they had wired a booby trap, a wire across the door, and put metal cans on it so they could hear people coming in, you know, at night, because they were convinced they're coming to get them. I said, guys, I promise when I tell you, they don't even know you're here. Like, I'm, they're looking at the girls. They're not looking at the 13-year-old boys. I promise you. They don't even know you exist. Like, this is, this is your imagination because they don't care. They wouldn't have it. Oh, they wouldn't have it. No, because they got in there and just keep building each other up and this frenzy. And, and then there was little wars being done, little tricks being played. And, and our guys, I'm not going to tell you the story. It w it's not Sunday morning material. Our guys stepped way across the line in their boy's cabin. That's all I'm going to say. I'm just saying way across the line. Like way, like the furthest, I was a youth pastor a long time, and I'm telling you, more than I could have imagined or dreamed or think, you know, they were way over the line. And it was so far over the line, I called the entire dorm of guys, I don't care what church you're in, if you're in this dorm, I want you in the cafeterias after service one night, and we all crowded in there. There's, you know, a few, whatever, 150, 200 guys in this room. And at that point, we didn't know who did it. And so I said, okay, here's what we're going to do. Whoever did this is going to confess, and you're going to confess now. Because if you don't, nobody's leaving this room until you do. I got the kitchen, I got food, you got nothing. <laughs> so let's have it. So here comes, you know, here comes some of my little, what? He said we had to, oh, here they come, you know. They're little sandals and look like little broomsticks with, Bermuda trunks on, you know. Here they are. And as they stood up, I went, oh, Jesus, they're mine. They're mine. Lord, please not let them be mine. Why are they mine? And then I said, okay, if your stuff was desecrated, I want you to come up here. Oh, you know, they couldn't wait. And they came and looked right at them. Just stared at them. And, and like their shadow almost hurt one of them. You know, they're popping muscles. And one of my kids starts to cry. 
You know, he just starts breaking down. So, Lord, this is bad. This is bad, 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 bad. Okay. Didn't see that coming. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to separate you two groups. You're not left in a room alone. They are going to eat you. So we're going to separate, and I pulled some of the chaperones in, and I said, all right, guys, here's the deal. My guys are going home. They're done. We're not going to let people treat people this way at our camp. These guys have every right to be here, and, and our guys are going home. We're going to start calling parents. I happen to have in my group um, a really wise man who, who was, and he had a great perspective, and I'll tell you why. He was um, a, a chaplain at the Eglin Air Force Prison. So he's thinking, this ain't nothing right here. <laughs> and he looked at me and he said, you know, the only thing is, though, if you send them home, it's like they got away with it. I said, what do you mean they got away with it? They get away with nothing. They lost the rest of the week. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go, you know. You send John Mark home, I'm done with John Mark. I'm done with him. And he said, yeah, but it's like they got away with it. I mean, they did it, and then they're separated from the people they offended. They just get to go home and play you know, video games or whatever, do whatever they want. They don't have to stay here and face these people over and over. And I said, well, they're going to kill them. What do you think we should do? He said, well, I think we should um, go to those older guys and see if they would be open to uh, have one of those younger guys with them for a day. I said, I don't know, man. I'm kind of nervous. He said, let's just see. Okay. So I went to the older Kingwood guys, these big guys, and I said, guys, look, I, I can't tell you how sorry I am, and our guys have already apologized to you, and some of them are still crying. Um, and, you know, they're calling their parents, asking them to airlift them out of there. And, and I said, look, we got this crazy idea, and I don't even know if you'd be open to it, but would you adopt one of these guys, one of these younger guys? They look up to you. That's what this is all coming from. And would you spend the day with them? Now, here's what I mean. You don't have to do nothing. When you eat, they eat. When you go to the beach, they go to the beach. Whatever you want to do, they're in your hip pocket, and they got to be where you are. I'm assigning them to you. Now, you can't mistreat them, but, you know, it's okay to scare them a little, but you can't mistreat them. And can I tell you what happened? One of the greatest relational miracles I've ever seen in my life. By dinner that night, those young guys were all being thrown in the pool, and they were buddies, and they had exchanged information and got to know each other. And man, the day was over, and you know, they just kept hanging out together. Think about all the good that can come when we resolve conflict in a good way. Well, that's no different for um, Paul and Barnabas. How did the church go viral? The church went viral because they refused to allow conflict to take them off mission. Now, we don't know how and we don't know when, but we do know there was some reconciliation. And I'll show you in 1 Peter 5, 13, Paul is, uh, the apostle Peter's writing, listen to what he says. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. So Mark's back on the team. Second Timothy, only Luke is with me. This is Paul writing. Oh, by the way, this is the last letter Paul would ever write, and he wrote it to his number one apprentice, and he wrote it from a prison. And he said, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you because he's helpful to me. Bring Mark, my son, with you because he's helpful to me. Not only had Mark grown up and become dependable to Paul, he became a great force in the church. You ever heard of the book, The Gospel According to Mark? That's this guy. <laughs> According to tradition, Mark was the first man who took the gospel to Egypt. And he was the one to first establish a church in Alexandria. Nobody's perfect, but God has a perfect plan. If you'll just cooperate. 
I'm so grateful that that chaplain was in my life because I don't think we would have seen the miracle that we saw without that chaplain being in my ear and saying, have you ever thought about doing it this way? And he had a greater good in mind than I did. And man, I learned a lot. And I saw a lot. I saw something that would have never existed had that man of wisdom not been in my life in that moment. So would you stand with me this morning? I, I want to ask, uh, it's Father's Day, and so I want to ask all our dads and all our men and, and, and males. I don't, it doesn't matter what age you are. Would you come and stand with me for a minute here? I want to pray over you, and I, I want to say a few things to you. Would you come, guys? Would you come and just stand with me for a minute? Come on, all guys. Come on in. You're going to have to press all the way to the front, as far as you can get. Will you bring the lights up just a little bit? I want to be able to see everybody best I can. Come on in. Come on, guys. I'm glad you're here. Glad you're here today because we need you. The church needs you and your family needs you. I want to tell you how much we appreciate you. Kingwood Church isn't a place where men are torn down, it's a place where you're built up. Today, I respect you and I give you respect as a man and as a son of God, and I honor you. I, w I want to give you a few thoughts this morning, and I, I don't want you to hear those thoughts from a leader or a pastor. I want you to hear them from a son, because I'm a son. I have a father. And as a child, my father was so good to me in so many ways. He provided for me and helped me, but there were other ways that he, he couldn't help me. Emotionally and spiritually and relationally. He just didn't have very much to give. And it left a big void in my life for a long time. For years and years and years, I had to work on how would I fill the void left by what my dad couldn't give me. And so I, I'm, not here to, I'm not here to put you down. I'm here to appeal to you. You know, one of John Mark's problems was he was a deserter. You're not a deserter. If you were, you wouldn't be here today. But I want to encourage you to not be a deserter of any kind. To be present. Your presence is so valuable in your family and in your church. You make a difference. Even if you're not loud, you make a difference. So I want to encourage you today to be present emotionally. You don't have to be emotional. Just be present emotionally. Know the emotions of your, of your wife and your kids. Know how they feel about stuff. You know? You don't have to have all the answers. Let your daughter know that she's talented and she's smart and she's beautiful because her dad says so. You be the one to tell her. And put your hand on your son's shoulder and tell him, I believe in you. I don't care whatever happens to you in life, you're going to make some good decisions and some bad ones. But there's one thing you don't ever have to doubt till the day I die, and that's that your father believes in you. Do you have any idea what that does for a young man? It just ignites their soul. So tell them. Be there spiritually. Don't, don't delegate the spiritual stuff to your wife. You're going to pray different than she prays. You're going to worship different than she worships. You're going to do your whole relationship with God different than she does her relationship with God. But you know what? Your, your son doesn't necessarily need to know from her as much how do we do this he needs to know from you 
So just live it in front of your family. You be the one to say, hey, let's pray for dinner. Hey, let's go to church. Hey, have you signed up for that summer camp? What's it called? Beach something? (laughs) Yeah. You do that. Be there relationally. Do you know that both boys and girls receive their sexual identity from their father? Did you know that? So be there. You set the tone. Be there relationally. Don't allow conflict to simmer up inside your family and let the tone of your whole family be chaos as much as you can. You can't, you can't make anybody do anything, but you can be present and you can be a peacemaker. I want to challenge you to do it. So I got a gift for you today. I got two gifts because you're so awesome. We got everybody an ice cold A&W root beer when you leave. So on the way out today, stop and get your root beer. Hey, look at me. Please get some. We have hundreds. Please. Like I'm begging you. Second, we've got a free ticket. Now, this won't apply to all of you. I've never killed anything on purpose in my life. But those of you that are hunters, World Deer Expo at the BJCC, we got you a free ticket. And so on your way out, when you get your root beer, Get you a ticket to the uh, World Expo, July 19th, 20, and 2021, okay? And, uh, you know, if you if you never hunted in your life, go walk around and make fun of all the people that hunt. You know, whatever, whatever you need to do. Whatever you need to do, you know what I'm saying? You can tell the old dumb camouflage. Hey, I can't even see you had camouflage on. You need to do all that. I want to pray for you, okay? And I love you, and I'm proud of you, and I appreciate you. I respect you. And I want you to be the man of God that God wants you to be. That's all I want. No hard feelings toward men in our church. We love you. Would you close your eyes and let me just pray for you? Lord Jesus, I pray today over every man. I just want you to receive this. This is for you. God, I pray today that you would raise up servants and I pray that you'd raise up godly men because we need godly men. Lord, what what a void we feel in our world today. God, I pray that you would calm fears And I pray that you would resolve, help to resolve conflicts. And God, I pray that you'd grant peace today. And I pray that you'd let a covering, a blessing be over these men. And Lord, I pray they'd be examples, not only to their own family, but to the families around them in the workplace and in this church and in this community in Shelby County. God, I pray that your presence and peace would walk with them as they walk toward you. God, I pray that you would today make them more in your image. God, we celebrate what you've done in this creation that you've made called male. We celebrate that. And we receive it as a gift from you. Now raise us up to be the men that you want us to be. In Jesus' name. Jesus' name. Would you give our guys a big hand to show them how much you love them? We appreciate you guys. Hey, you might not be a hugger. At least shake somebody's hand and and, uh, get a root beer on the way out. We love you. Thanks for coming.